0: Hello, Psychologia listeners. This is Amaya. If you've been keeping up with us on social media or here on our episode feed, you know that we've been gearing up for a very exciting Kickstarter campaign to fund our second season. We want to make this podcast a consistent and regular project with better sound, more variety, and a whole series of new true crime and dark psychology topics. I'm so pleased to announce that as of today, that campaign is live and you are the first to know about it head over to our website, psychologiapodcast.com, or search for Psychologia on Kickstarter and pledge what you can. Then tell your friends, your family, and any other psychology-loving people you know who will be into what we do. Some of the topics I'm excited about researching for this season include angels of death, brainwashing, child criminals, the use of cocaine in psychology, fasting girls, gender, LSD experiments on treating psychopaths, organized religion everyone's favorite the psychology of serial killers sex sleep paralysis and so many others if any of those fascinate you as much as they fascinate me then help us make this happen the campaign will be live for the next 30 days and we need your help to reach our funding goal and make season two a reality in the meantime we will be releasing a summer mini season with two episodes this is the first so you can get your psychologia fix thank you in advance for your support. On with the show. I'm recording this episode in my home office, tucked into the corner of our Los Angeles apartment. Outside is early summer, it is hot, and things are quite green and verdant. I can't hear any sirens, any screaming, any disturbing noise at all. It almost feels peaceful. Beyond this room, however, The world is in a tremendous period of unrest, fear, and instability. The current political climate has left people on all sides of every aisle reeling and desperately trying to figure out how we got where we are and where we go next. How have so many people stopped looking to facts as a guide for decision making? Why do so many people embrace seemingly hateful rhetoric or get swept up in Facebook feuds with family members or grow so fearful and angry that they stop listening to reason and turn to their emotions for guidance instead? How have we all, and I do mean all, fallen prey to the messages that come from on high through our computers, televisions, and phones? As a card-carrying member of the science-believing, education-loving faction, I have found myself turning in part to what I know best to try and make sense of it all, and that is psychology. As far as I can see, all of this has a lot to do with the ability that some people or groups or parties have to successfully convince others of their perspective. And so that is our topic today. What is persuasion? Welcome to Psychologia. The podcast where we explore the science behind why we do what we do. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. When your emotions control... Your- Persuasion is defined as the process of consciously attempting to change attitudes through the transmission of some message. Beginning during World War II, psychologists began to study persuasion in earnest, focusing on when and how it occurs. In the 1970s, social psychologists became more interested in why people change their attitudes in response to persuasive messages. In the 1990s, this led to the assumption that the thoughts that people generate in response to a message are the end result of an information-processing activity. Persuasion can occur through both effortful and effortless thinking. Most theories of persuasion posit that people either attempt to carefully and intentionally judge the truth of a persuasive message, or they use simple decision rules to spontaneously and automatically estimate its validity. The most influential theory of persuasion was developed in 1986 by Richard Petty and John Cacioppo. It's called the Elaboration Likelihood Model, or ELM. The name refers to the probability that the target of a persuasive message will elaborate or carefully analyze and attempt to comprehend a message's information. The ELM assumes that people want to be correct in their attitudes, and they will engage in either high or low elaboration when attending to and processing persuasive messages. So, when we are motivated and we are able to think clearly about the content of a message, we are influenced by the strength and quality of the argument, and we engage in high elaboration. This is the central route to processing. Whether center processing leads to attitude change is determined by the proportion of thoughts that we generate that are consistent with or counter to the persuasive message. More consistent thoughts mean that you're more likely to become persuaded, while more counter arguments lead to the opposite. When we are unwilling or unable to analyze message content, we use lower elaboration, which is the peripheral route to persuasion. In peripheral root processing, we pay attention to cues that are irrelevant to the content or quality of the communication, such as the attractiveness of the communicator or the quantity of information. By attending to these peripheral cues, we evaluate a message without thinking deeply about the issues that we're considering. This means that it isn't necessary for a person using peripheral root processing to understand the message, and attitude change can occur without comprehension. So when elaboration is high, central root thinking dominates, and when elaboration is low, peripheral root thinking is dominant. When elaboration is moderate, both roots are employed. And although attitudes can occur through either the effortful or effortless mode of processing, those that are formed through the effortless method are weaker and less predictive of behavior. A house made with straw may be easier to build than one with bricks, but is also much easier to blow down. Although almost everyone is capable of critically analyzing persuasive messages, some people may be more motivated to do this than others. This individual preference is called the need for cognition, or NFC. In 1982, John Cacioppo and Richard Petty designed a personality scale to measure NFC. Let's explore this concept with an exercise. Pause now, get a pen and paper, and follow along to find out whether you have high or low need for cognition. Ready? Okay. Listen to the following eight items and note the ones that you agree with. One. I really enjoy a task that involves coming up with new solutions to problems. Two. Thinking is not my idea of fun. Three. The notion of thinking abstractly is appealing to me. Four. I like tasks that require little thought once I've learned them. Five. I usually end up deliberating about issues even when they do not affect me personally. Six, it's enough for me that something gets the job done. I don't care how or why it works. Seven, I prefer my life to be filled with puzzles that I must solve. Eight, I only think as hard as I have to. Done? Okay, let's score you. If you agree with the odd items... 1, 3, 5, and 7, and disagree with the even numbers, 2, 4, 6, 8, then you show behaviors that are indicative of a person with a higher need for cognition, while those of you who prefer the even-numbered items have a lower NFC. So what, you might ask? Well, people with a higher need for cognition tend to seek out difficult cognitive tasks. They use more central root processing and are more influenced by fact-based persuasive arguments. Those with a lower NFC are more likely to use peripheral root processing and be convinced by emotion based messages. As a result, the attitudes of people with a lower NFC tend to be more easily influenced. Another important element in persuasion is how the persuader is perceived. Although the person delivering a persuasive message is technically more of a peripheral cue, this person is the message source, and therefore they are crucial to whether the message will produce attitude change. This is especially true if the recipient lacks the motivation to carefully consider the persuasive messages. People on the receiving end of a persuasive message pay a lot of attention to the credibility or believability of a source. Persuader credibility is based on perceptions of expertise and trustworthiness. Experts in persuasion appear to have extensive knowledge on the topic at hand, they look to be honest in what they are saying, and they seem unbiased. Any perceived bias can discredit the persuasive message. For example, research has shown that college administrators are more likely to be successful in anti-binging drinking campaigns that do not mention agencies or scientists with governmental backing. There are several studies that have supported the importance of perceived credibility in persuasion. One such was done by Hovland and Weiss in 1951. The pair asked American college students to read an article proposing that nuclear-powered submarines were feasible and safe. No such submarines existed at the time. They then attributed the article to either J. Robert Oppenheimer, the American scientist who supervised the development of the atomic bomb, or the Russian newspaper Pravda. Because it was the height of the Cold War, they hypothesized that Oppenheimer would be the most trusted source, and they were right. Readers who believed that the American had written the piece were more convinced of its veracity. However, when the participants were polled again several weeks later, Oppenheimer appeared to have lost credibility while Pravda had gained some. Other researchers have found the same thing. Highly credible sources are most persuasive immediately following message delivery, but the credibility gap lessens over time. This is called the sleeper effect. Kelman and Hovland believed that the sleeper effect was caused by the fact that, over time, people forget the source of information, and they are influenced instead by the message content alone. So, as time passed, Oppenheimer became disassociated with the message, and it lost his persuasive power. To test the sleeper effect, Kelman and Hovland conducted a study in 1953 in which they reminded some participants of the information source— which is called the discounting cue, before retesting their faith in the message. As expected, the people who were reminded of the link between information and source did not display the sleeper effect. This led the researchers to conclude that the sleeper effect most likely occurs when the message is convincing enough by itself to lead to persuasion. The person on the receiving end is motivated to elaborate on the message before hearing the discounting cue and is given information discrediting the source after the persuasive message, not before, and the impact of the low-credibility information decays in his or her memory faster than the persuasive message itself. A very powerful tool in persuasion is, unsurprisingly, the persuader's attractiveness. In this context, attractiveness is based on three main factors. Likeability... Similarity to the audience, and, of course, physical attractiveness. Likeability can be as simple as saying nice things, which can directly improve the odds of persuasion. Similarity to the audience can be based on a number of elements, such as politics and morals, background, appearance, etc. Similarity in attitudes and values appears to be the most persuasive type of similarity, which is why advertisements and public service announcements typically feature people who look like the target audience. While beauty is subjective, physical attractiveness is often perceived similarly by people within a culture, meaning that a physically attractive person will be seen as attractive by a high number of people and therefore have strong powers of persuasion. A study conducted by Shelley Chaikin in 1979 found that a conventionally attractive person was able to convince 41% of students at a university to sign a petition banning meat in the cafeteria, while a less attractive person was only able to secure 32% of requested signatures. The use of beauty as a persuasive tool can almost always be found in advertising, where attractive people are used to induce peripheral root processing in which they are associated with the product that's being advertised. One of the earliest examples of this method occurred in the 1920s when Edward Bernays, fun psychology trivia, he was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, took advantage of the suffragette movement to sell cigarettes. He arranged for a group of attractive cigarette-smoking women to march in Manhattan's 1929 Easter parade. When the pictures were published in newspapers, Bernays touted the cigarettes as the torch of freedom for liberated ladies, and women all across the country picked up smoking. Today, it is almost impossible to watch an evening of TV or flip through a magazine without seeing many, 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 many commercials employing the same tactic. Another less obvious element of successful persuasion is speaking pace. Research shows that communicators who speak more rapidly appear more credible than those who speak slowly. Again, this can be seen quite often in commercials and other advertisements. But is fast-talking always beneficial to persuasion? According to the Elaboration Likelihood Model, rapid speech is beneficial only when the audience's original attitude is opposite to the persuader's. In this situation, the audience's counterargument is short-circuited by the speed of the presentation, and there is less opportunity to scrutinize the message. the Federal Reserve to bring you immediate automotive relief. Take advantage of $10 million in lending power. And Fred Subaru's established relationship with the area's top lenders. Attention citizens of Fort Wayne. Our new management wants your trade at Fort Wayne, Acura, and Subaru. Even if you owe $15,000 more than it's worth... When the audience members already agree with the message, however, fast speech can actually be a hindrance because it inhibits the listeners from taking the time to incorporate the new ideas. A great study that showed this effect was conducted in 1991 by Smith and Schaffer, who asked college students to listen to persuasive messages in favor of or against raising the legal drinking age. The arguments were presented at a slow, normal, and fast rate of speed. A survey given at the beginning of the study asked the participants questions that revealed their initial attitudes about the proposed law. When these same students were polled after the presentations, the elaboration likelihood hypothesis proved true. When students heard an argument that countered their own beliefs presented at a rapid pace, they were more likely to be persuaded, but the opposite was true when the listener already agreed with the argument. Emotional reactions can have a strong effect on whether or not a message is persuasive, and there is no better example of this than politics. For many years, social scientists believed that voters made decisions based on rational thought. But, as just about anyone reading the news these days can attest... More recent studies have shown that emotions actually play a huge role in elections. I mean, There are policies that Bush or Romney or, you know, McCain suggested that I wasn't necessarily on board with, but I didn't feel offended by that. The ...voting decision I've ever made in my entire life. I don't like Trump as a human being. I didn't make my actual decision on who to vote for really until the day of. In 2007, Drew Weston found that reason plays virtually no role whatsoever in voter decision-making when the political issue at hand evokes strong emotions. Additionally, he found that the Republican Party is far more skilled at crafting emotional messages, while Democrats tend to lean more on strong, reason-based arguments, which are often less successful at shifting voters' attitudes. One particularly powerful route to persuasion is to inspire a positive mood in the listener. A 1965 study by Irving Janis found that reading a persuasive message while eating a snack and drinking a soda convinced more people to adopt a new viewpoint. Social psychologists argue that this is because a comfortable situation signals to people that everything is fine and there is no need to engage in problem-solving or critical thinking. This is called the feelings-as-information model. In contrast, people who are unhappy are more likely to use central root processing in an effort to fix whatever is wrong, which can block the effectiveness of a persuasive message. Alternately, there is another theory that supports the idea that happy people will engage in central root processing if the message they are presented with might generate something pleasant. This is called the hedonic contingency view. So, while happy people may generally be more easily persuaded, they are also less likely to more carefully scrutinize information that may lead to more happiness. Another effective method of persuasion involves the manipulation of fear. is, to me, it's a very simple question. We're that. not saying that you but can't come return to, to America. We're saying you that know what? we need to check I you out. What really on bothers on, me deep down inside, inside is what all our top intelligence officials are telling us that ISIS will infiltrate the president. refugee population, then I think that we that ISIS may be evil, but that doesn't mean they're stupid. I think i got to imagine. A high level of fear can be a barrier to information processing, because too much anxiety makes people unable to digest information and can even prevent memory encoding. In 1990, Gypsum and Chaikin measured a group of participants' anxiety about cancer, and then had them read an article about cancer screening. Those who initially said that they had higher rates of fear remembered less information and were less persuaded than those who had less fear. So, it seems as though too much fear actually generates feelings of helplessness. In order to be effective, these fear appeals must include not only anxiety-producing information, but also a message that offers an action or a solution. I would bomb the shit out of them. If we feel too highly vulnerable to a threat, we don't take the time to analyze the actions that we are being offered to avoid danger, and this can result in being persuaded by weaker arguments. This is most likely the reason that many voters fail to critically analyze highly questionable social policies when they are introduced with fear appeals. That's right, I'd blow up the pipes, I'd blow up the refi- I'd blow up every single inch, there would be nothing left, and you know what? Just as fear can inhibit comprehension, so too can humor. Many persuaders use humor as a means to appeal to an audience, but if the joke is not closely related to the information, it may be more memorable than the message itself. In order for humor to work persuasively, it must be closely tied to the presented material. A study conducted by Stephen Smith in 1994 found that people are motivated to use central root processing if they are exposed to humor that is relevant to a persuasive message. In these instances, humor can even encourage elaboration. I've ordered every federal agency to eliminate rules that don't make sense. We got rid of one rule from 40 years ago that could have forced some dairy farmers to spend $10,000 a year proving that they could contain a spill because milk was somehow classified as an oil. With a rule like that, I guess it was worth crying over spilled milk. When the joke is not relevant, however, people are more likely to use peripheral root processing and base decisions on such things as source credibility. I don't know who created Pokemon Go. But I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. Another factor that determines the persuasiveness of a given message is whether it is one-sided or two-sided. In a one-sided message, the persuader presents only one argument, whereas in a two-sided message, the persuader presents the argument and refutes the possible opposing viewpoints. Depending on the listener, these types of messages can have differing effects. A one-sided appeal is most effective when the audience is already in agreement with the message, while a two-sided appeal can convince people who have opposing views. So clearly there are many ways... To persuade people to see your point of view. Which means that there are many ways for you to be persuaded of theirs. Really, and they will go are going to Is there a way to protect yourself from being susceptible to the opinions of others? And can you persuade others in such a way that they won't just change their mind when someone else tries to convince them of the opposite point? Well, two-sided messages can help you there because they are also effective in persuading people who are well-informed or likely to have an opposing viewpoint at some point in the future. If these people are exposed to a counter-argument right from the start, they can actually be inoculated against the opposition. William McGuire developed this theory of inoculation during the 1950s in response to Cold War fears of American susceptibility to communist propaganda. He argued that people are most vulnerable to such propaganda when they come from a society that overprotects them from hearing opposing perspectives. Essentially, he felt that they would not have an immunity to these ideas, and they'd be unable to fight back. He reasoned that a small dose of the dangerous argument, combined with a clear counter-argument, would act as a vaccination of sort. Unfortunately, later studies have shown that this inoculation model can also prevent people from considering well-reasoned arguments and effectively be used to manipulate their attitudes and beliefs. So, if we can't protect ourselves from the opinions of others, we may be at risk of falling into realities that we may never encounter on our own. As we've seen, people who are skilled persuaders can make us see the world in ways we never have before and convince us to do things and think things that differ wildly from social norms. One of the places that this happens in the creepiest of ways is during the process of cult indoctrination, which will be the topic of our next episode. So stay tuned, keep in touch, and do your very best to think for yourself. Oh, and support scientific media by giving to our Kickstarter campaign. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with writing help from Mario Rivera and original sound design and music composition by Cambrian Carter. You can find all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Take a moment to write us a review. It really helps us out. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Cast and visit our website for show notes and supplemental materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back soon with another episode exploring the science behind why we do what we do. When your emotions control your actions, psychologists find that control of emotions can be gained by understanding the stimulus response patterns When you have certain experiences, you respond with various emotions.